Hey, this is John Willis again on uh, the Profound Podcast. I've got a great guest. I know I say that every time, but this is a great guest. Um, I've been working with this gentleman for two years now. I've known him for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And, and, and um, you know, I like to give out compliments when they're absolutely due. I think every time this person speaks, the collective audience's IQ raises and and. And I've felt that over the last two years working with him. Uh, Jay, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, John. I mean, just uh, what I, I watched a bunch of the uh, previous guests. What an amazing collection of uh, people you've had. It's really um, an honor to, to join in the, in the gang of your, your, your commentators so far. Um, uh, my name's Jabe. Um, work at Red Hat. I've been a CTO, um, a chief architect, um, a designer um, for, I don't know, 20 years now. Um, I'm currently getting my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, and I study uh, what's called transition design. So how how do we change systems, uh, social systems, technical systems over a long period of time? Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in a question of like, how do we get to a point in which uh, kind of human existence on the planet is sustainable because it doesn't seem like we're quite there yet. But yeah. Yeah. That's what I work on. Yeah. Uh, the 2001 space odyssey questions, <laughs> right? Um, the um, yeah. And I think the other thing that you've mentioned to me a few times is that um, you're the f- first one in your program is really focusing on it in these, in these areas. Right. And that's, that's right. yeah. I, I um, you know, a lot of the, I mean, I was recruited in because of some of my actually some of my lectures on lean and uh, the way that lean has kind of ideas of theory of change built into it, epistemologies built into it um, and questions, honestly, about um, the relationship between production and sustainability and whether or not lean can contribute to sustainability yeah. at, it, in, in the same way that it has probably contributed to unsustainability. So right. it seems to be a key, uh, you know, a lot of the theories seem to be key to understanding, uh, you know, how, how to become more sustainable, frankly. So that's, that's interesting. Awesome. The um, So I've had the, you know, the been fortunate enough to have a lot of sort of conversations with you over the last two years, working with you and all and, and, you know, and obviously this podcast is reasonably devoted to Deming and, um, you know, and, you know, I, I would, you know, probably if I had to come one word, I'd say his final manifesto was called System of Profound Knowledge. And uh, one of those lenses, you know, four lenses, we've talked about the, the lenses in this pod, other podcast series. One of those lenses is called uh, Theory of Knowledge. And, uh, and, and Jabe just has a really good way to explain the background. So could you walk us through the theory of knowledge from, from like, all right, so Deming proposed this as a lens for complexity, but then take us all the way back through epistemology. Um, I didn't really fully understand that concept until I met you. Um, and then walk us through, and then we have a sort of interesting discussion about pragmatism and how it influenced Deming, how that sure. actually could work us through into what really lean is, which is Toyota production systems, and then uh, contextualize that. And this is the this is the longest first question I've ever asked a guest, but um, and then contextualize that into um, what how we see this manifest today, 
winding it back or circling back to uh, theory of knowledge as part of system profound knowledge. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, let, let, let's start with epistemology and then we can move to pragmatism second, secondarily. So epistemology, um, the, like the, the kind of brute force version of it is just like, how do we learn about the world? That's kind of like the easiest version to understand about. Um, but you can, you can kind of extend it from there. Like it has to do with like questions about what is knowledge? What does it mean to know something? Um, uh, how do you document knowledge? Um, how do you pass knowledge around? Um, and then there's kind of like subjective and intersubjective versions of this. So like, how do I know something versus how do we know something? Like you and I both know something together. These are all epistemological questions. Um, and often uh, in the analytic tradition um, and, you know, generally in some other ones, um, epistemology has to do with what we would call justified belief. Um, so it's it, and it's really interesting to hear that that second term. We'll explore justified in a second, but belief, it's not about the truth. It's about what you believe to be true um, and whether or not you're justified in believing that. And so, like, the really simple way of saying that is, like, if you do something and someone comes up to you and says, why did you do that? Do you have an explanation for what you did that justified the action? Yeah. And there's some really interesting implications uh, involved here. Um, and it's partially what kind of differentiates, for instance, epistemology from ethics. Um, in epistemology, you could have a justified belief. I believed that that person was going to shoot me. And so I shot them first. That, that is a justified belief, assuming, like, I don't know, the other person was aiming a gun at you. Yeah? Um, that doesn't make it an ethical decision that makes it an, a kind of an epistemologically justified decision, right? So you can see this in, like, all sorts of different forms of justice. These are epistemological questions about agency and interaction with the world and things like this, right? Um, so uh, there's different kinds of justification, right? Um, you can be sufficiently justified or warranted in your belief. And that, that means that, you know, again, in the case of like uh, defending yourself, that's a warranted defense. Um, but it's important to realize that you can hold a belief in a justifiable way without that belief being true. In other words, uh, you, could, you, you could believe something that other people know isn't true. But as long as you're justified in believing it, then you are having an epistemological kind of interaction with the world, right? Um, and then, uh, so what we're doing when we look for things in epistemology is we're looking for ways of using rationality to justify actions. That's what we're kind of trying to do, at least in, in what we'll, we will frame up as being kind of pragmatism, right? Um, so what do we have, what, what beliefs do we have that we're, have a good reason for holding those beliefs? Um, how is that related to rationality? Um, and then the other weird thing that we end up getting in here eventually, especially in pragmatism is because of that, like differentiation between belief and truth. So like truth is fixed, right? In theory, like in theory, truth shouldn't change ever. Justified belief can change. And so we end up with, was it reasonable? Re reasonableness can include probability. So what, what, is, what is reasonable to believe could be, it was 
probable that this would happen. Not was absolutely true that this would happen, but it's probable that X would happen or Y would happen if I took this action, right? Isn't, so we isn't get that, a little bit into probability. Yeah, and, and that's I'm fascinated by that too. But isn't that the sort of at the core, it's like, like the scientific mindset, if that's a, a phrase, is that they're really, you know, truth is temporal, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and, and that's something we'll get into. Um, but there are, you know, in, in science, so like etymology of science is really fascinating and, and part one of the things to understand about epistemology in general is that another name for epistemology is just philosophy of science. It's the same thing, right, uh, in many ways. And the reason for that is because, again, epistemology is about knowledge and science just means knowing. That's the etymological root of science is knowing stuff, right? That's what, that's what it meant uh, back in the day. And so, yeah, uh, the, the whole kind of mindset of having a scientific mindset is how we study this um, way in which we know more or less about the world. And the, the scientific method is a particular form of epistemology that people would argue is many people argue is the best way of knowing things about the world where knowing is this knowledge thing that we're talking about. Like it gives you the best justifications for your actions is the scientific method does that. Knowing is the experience part, right? Which is like, I mean, right. I mean, not to jump ahead way ahead, but Deming's PDSA, right. Which is, you know, people with, I would say that aren't in a scientific mindset will be, you know, plan, do, plan, do, plan, do, plan, do, as yep. opposed to plan, do, study, act. That's right. Yep. So it's, it's so like the PDSA loop and like, you know, we'll eventually get to Lewis and pragmatism in a bit. But the, the important thing to understand about the PDSA loop in relationship to kind of pragmatic thought or, or epistemology is that um, or, or Lewis's epistemology in particular is that you, you want to, you have to differentiate these two things. One is your ideas about the world, your concepts about the world. And so concepts might be like dog, right? And so that dog concept is related to other things like food. So dogs eat food. That's a set of concepts that are true on some level, right? Now, if you go downstairs and you have a dog and you put, let's say, broccoli down in front of them, that's food. And you'll notice that that the dog doesn't eat the broccoli. So you go, oh, like I have to modify my understanding of the logical co- uh, conceptual model I have of dog eat food. It's a specific kind of food. That I have dog empirical eats. evidence on this. I dropped a half a that, onion on the floor yesterday, and my dog, who will eat anything, did not eat the onion. That's right. So that and that 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 is the way in which experience relates to a conceptual model, right? Mm-hmm. And so for Deming, when we do the kind of plan, do, study, act, um, the plan do is the, what is the conceptual model? What's the model that we're going to have? What's the theory that we have about the world? Do something to test the theory. <laughs> study whether or not the theory and the em- empirical result actually match or not. And then act based on whatever misfit of action there is, right? And so, you know, the important part there is um, that when we think about pragmatism, one of the things we we want to kind of constantly point out um, 
from again from Lewis's perspective is and this is this ends up being strange strange ways to have to say this but our concepts are are not what's being challenged in our empirical experience so uh, we're not changing dog eats food by recognizing dog doesn't eat broccoli what we're changing is our interpretation of our concepts empiricism what what the empirical experience we have the the direct experience we have modifies not the theory but our interpretation of the theory yeah um and so that's really important to kind of like understand and it is important to understand because when you look at things like statistical process control what you don't want people to do is modify like oh if i change the way in which we do a control chart now, now my thing works. It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah. you don't get to change yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the structure of the concept. You have to change your interpretation of what you see. That's how we learn. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's the classic. I forget them. I'll misquote it, but like the, I think it's one of Deming's, whichever is like, you know, show me what you want to report on and I'll report on it. Right. That's like the, the you talked about Lewis. And so just to set, um, you know, I, I had read that, you know, Dr. Schuert, who was one of the, if not the primary mentor to Dr. Deming, yep. um, gave Deming, told him, hey, you really need to read this book yep. by C.I. Lewis, uh, not to be confused with C.S. Lewis, um, and The World in the Mind Order. And, yep. and I, I remember Deming saying in one of his quotes is, I had to read it six times and I still tell people just go to the chapter X <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I talked to you about it, you know, because you've got, you, so you've got a lot of academic experience and, and things. And uh, can you walk us through, and I think you've made some beautiful quotes about pragmatism and, and how it's uniquely American. And uh, yep. then how does that sort of fit into this extension of this conversation? Yeah. So I think, so uh, first of all, pragmatism. So pragmatism um is arguably like the Amer the only American philosophy, right? Like it's arguably the only American in the, in the same way like jazz is the only American music, right? Like it's something that we can truly claim occurred in in the United States, and, and like to set the context of it, right? Um, so Pierce and James are the primary. So Pierce and James, I always say his name wrong, um, are the primary contributors to this, or the people who start this uh, this idea up. And they are writing right when Darwin is publishing. Um, and they live long enough to see Einstein publish. So what they're undergoing is this kind of weird um, experience in what's happening in science, which is the move from what, what's called positivism. So like the belief that, so the, positives, the positivists believed that we, we, we could ground everything in logic. And what that means is that everything could be explained mathematically. All things would be explained mathematically. And uh, that was just what was going to happen. Um, and uh, there would be some sort of universal truth uh, that would be found through mathematics. And there's a series of things that happened after that, like Goodell and a bunch of other people kind of show that that's not something that actually can happen. But let's leave that to the side. What, what we're experiencing when we look at Pierce and James, and by the way, James is you know also quite religious, uh, ha, ha, wants to defend theistic ideas, um, and so we're we're also experiencing a move away from uh, you know 
re- religious experience as a, as a primary driver in the United States, at least. Um, so, uh, because it's being questioned by science, yeah. So, what we have is like evolution points out that things are in relationship to each other, and the relationships seem to be constantly changing, which changes the things, right? So, instead of having like a stable ground, mm-hmm. what we have is like a mutating ground, like a ground that's constantly moving. So the set, the, the theories that we're, we're trying to build are not st- built on a stable ground, but they're built on this weird morphing thing that's happening through evolution, right? So that's one thing that we're trying to grapple with in science. And the second one is kind of, um, uh, you know, relativity um, and the effects of relativity on what we could understand as, as knowledge, right? So like one of the things that... Uh, that the pragmatist will eventually try to resist is the idea that all knowledge is relative. Um, and how do we, how do we uh, get around that? How do we have some, some, uh, something beyond relativity, something beyond the belief that like what you believe, John, and what I believe, John, are equally valid. And we don't have to resolve that at all. Um, so we get Pierce uh, and Pierce, uh, Pierce is the more scientific of the two. Um, and there's a couple really interesting things about Pierce. I think Um one is that he's a, he's a statistician. He, he was a geodesic uh, scientist, which basically meant he was trying to figure out uh, uh, ideas about the shape of the earth and how to measure the shape of the earth and how to measure the magnetic fields. And a lot of the stuff he was doing, frankly, was building these weird custom pendulums to like be able to measure the magnetic deviation on the surface of the planet. And he comes to this realization in doing this work around pendulums. And basically he's working on creating the most accurate pendulum in the world so he can measure this stuff. And he comes to this realization. Uh, there's no end to uh, accuracy. I can always be more accurate. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's what's called an infinite recursion happening. Right? Yeah, that yeah. can't get to the well, end. This is the um, the two things I want to mention. What that idea that the world was changing. You know, I, I've just expressed it as the sort of Newtonian version was: you drop an apple, it hits the floor. Yep. The quantum version is drop the floor, drop the apple. Not sure where it goes. And yep, then, um, yeah. And um, the other thing I always think about is the simplistic. You know, the I guess the what is it? The rabbit tries to cross the road, so he gets halfway there. There's a parrot, right? And then tries to go halfway and halfway and halfway and theoretically never gets to the other side of the road right that's right yep so the the you know the the second one is the example of of this problem of infinite recursion and it becomes really this this idea or the pain of recursion is another phrase mm-hmm. that we use mm-hmm. philosophy for this and this becomes important for pragmatism because it brings in what we what, what e- economics it brings in economics and for pierce he literally called it the economics of experimentation and what he means by that is um, if it's possible to kind of constantly make an instrument that is more accurate, then what is the stopping function? Yeah. How do I know when to stop making it more accurate? Mm-hmm. And basically, this is where the idea of pragmatism first shows up. And he says, the way you do it is you make it accurate enough to be useful for whatever you're doing. And then you stop no, because there's no reason to make it more accurate than is useful. Uh, and so he's interrelating the idea that like experimentation and um, you know all this stuff costs money. It, it it takes time, and so he links economics and scientific theory, and the link of those two um, end up 
creating what we call pragmatism, right? And this becomes really important because obviously I think, uh, I think obviously like lean and a bunch of these other theories, which are the application of these scientific pragmatic methods to industry and the economics involved. So again, uh, to go to the, our, 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 our friends, uh, Schwartz book, uh, his first book, is what's it called? The Economic Control of Manufacture. Mm-hmm. So all of these people are trying to say there's like, we can use science, but we need a stopping function. Right, right. And the stopping function is a pragmatism. The right. stopping function is the basic question of, if we go further than this, would it be useful? And if, it, if the answer is it's not useful, then that's the stopping function. So that's the first kind of thing about Pierce. Um, Pierce also does this other weird thing that will become important in our conversation, which is there's traditionally in logic, uh, there's two types of ideas. There's deduction and induction. Uh, so deduction is like basically like a mathematical proof, right? Like X equals Y, right? And there's for, and th- this becomes important when we talk about Lewis because that idea of a priori knowledge uh, or like knowledge that we bring to the thing, the dog eats food thing, that you have to retain that um, because of the idea of deduction. We can prove certain things are absolutely true. The question is, again, for a pragmatist, is that useful to prove that or not? (laughs) Like what's the implications of proving that is the Mm -hmm. question, right? but above that, then there was always something, a secondary idea, which is called induction. And there's lots of arguments in philosophy about whether induction is useful. But induction is the idea, um, like the classic one that everybody knows is like, all the swans I've ever seen are white. Therefore, mm-hmm. all swans are white. That's an inductive yeah. statement. And the black swan theory is, you know, that well, there's black swans in Australia, is, is the counterfactual that shows the right. problem with induction. Right, right. right? Previous experience does not always equal future performance, right? right. Um, th- there's so, so, so there's a problem with induction versus deduction. And that problem is often in philosophy, one of the things w- that, that philosophers are trying to get rid of, right? They're trying to get rid of, they want to use induction to make good kind of exploratory guesses, but they want to get rid of the inductive aspect of it and create a deductive statement mm-hmm. so that it okay. can't be yeah, yeah. Um but what Pierce does is he he adds another one on top. It's called abduction. Uh, so it's a third logic. So induction is almost always the best guess, whereas abduction is um, is often a parallel set of guess, guesses. And in, in pragmatism and in pragmatic theory, um, kind of Pierce has this weird idea that the way we abduct about the world, the way we make good guesses about the world is... <laughs> Uh, we, our minds are from the world and so therefore are naturally attuned to the world. He calls it the mirror of nature is what eventually happens. Um, but anyway, he's got a lovely way he describes like looking up at the stars and guessing about which stars have planets around them. It's really interesting. Anyway, um, all that ends up being again about these economic things. How do you make a good guess where the good guess is practical or useful, Right. Um, and so that's the abductive sets of theories that you end up um, getting to. Um, and so the result of this from Pierce's perspective is you get a anti-foundationalist uh, set of theory, which basically means that 
he does he he avoids the infinite regress by not actually trying to found, find a ground or a foundation for knowledge. He just says you you'll never find it. Sometimes I think about it as like Pierce Pierce imagines trying to find the ground as literally just uh, like Alice in Wonderland falling in the hole. Like you yeah. just will never hit the bottom. You'll you know, never find the bottom. <laughs> I, I had uh, years ago, I had Mark, Mark Burgess on the podcast and he doesn't remember saying this to me, but I, I was, you know, in, in his book, book in search of certainty, which is an awesome book. If you, um, and, and he talks about, you know, Max Planck and Planck length. Yep. And I thought I remembered him telling me that Planck was sounds the, the Planck length is almost exactly this uh, economic balance of this sort of recursion in that he said that it was a, a, a number or a measure, a, a, a length or a value that you could use to measure the unmeasurable. In other words, how, how far do you want to go until it makes, and this is like from a non-quantum, non-science guy, but this is a number that works really well and you don't have to go any deeper into sort of infinity land, you know? That's right. And and that, and that's the type of stuff we end up looking for in pragmatism. And it, it ends up being the link like between these probabilistic theories and these absolutist theories. So a foundationalist version would say that there should be an exact number. Yeah. yeah. A, a, a pragmatist would say, I don't know, that might exist. That might be a thing. But is it useful to spend more time right now trying to find it? <laughs> right. Or is it useful to spend our time and money and effort somewhere else to like balance out some other set of theories? We, we like we've made an impact here. Have we? fit it with the rest of our theories uh, other places so that we're kind of like constantly rebalancing a network of concepts. Yeah. Together. And that was Schuett, you know, the, what I've sort of read from Schuett, right? Like he, his problem was, and we've talked about this, like they're building telephone factories, right? They're, right. You know, ridiculous amount of parts and they're using a very deterministic model for quality assurance. Yep. Yep. And, and, and I think part of that pragmatism sort of influence on him was, a, there's got to be a better way to do this, but B, and B, probability is the right way to attack this problem. And then C, the economic value, which I think led to statistical price control, which basically created this simple, you know, I won't say theorem, but of special cause and common cause. Yep, like, so I can basically separate the world into very simple using, you know, reasonably um, complex or reasonable statistics to change this sort of, you know, downstream stuff using probabilities, adding the economic balance, and let's separate the sort of black swans yep. from the things that we can control. So it, that makes so much more sense now uh, to, to me, uh, you know, describe Pierce's. Um, yeah. So that, like, I, I usually like, I try to think about like, Again, to bring to pull this economic thread, like what 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 is happening when Schuert and Deming are trying to figure this stuff out? Like what what is the change? What's why do they come up with this theory? Like why do they think this is this is something important? Right. So it's to me the first thing is it's like this very weird movement from craft to subassembly mass manufacture. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I'm not saying just mass manufacture, like go back to Adam Smith, he'll talk about like the vision of labor and like making pins. But even in the pin factory, like um, the pin factory metaphor, like the stuff is relatively close together and there's not really subassembly, there's sub labor components. So like, mm -hmm. um, 
But in mass manufacturer subassembly, meaning, um, John, I want to order like a hundred axe handles from you. I'm, I'm going to make the axes, but I need you to just make me axe handles. There become very specific kinds of problems with that relationship um, that don't occur in like a craft. Like if I were if I were to craft uh, an axe, I would be paying attention to each individual axe. I'd manufacture it. I might make the handle or maybe I have a friend, but the friend would make a handle for this particular axe head. Right. Yeah? Sub-assembly theory, um, kind of like out of Fordism, out of Taylorism, sub-assembly becomes this weird question about what is quality. And, and I think people confuse this all the time. Quality in a craft theory is literally about this particular axe is of high quality. Mm -hmm. it, it, it performs a certain task, right? Or it feels a certain way, uh, et cetera. Quality, the way that Deming and Schuert were talking about it, had to do with this subassembly relationship. And basically what I mean by that is quality is determined, you know, so the way that Deming says this, right, is quality is determined by the consumer. Um, and I, I think that the term consumer there becomes a really confusing thing for most people because they, they immediately go into like UX consumer. And the easier way to understand that statement, I think the way that Deming meant it is quality is determined by the integrator. And what I mean by that is by literally the person who puts the subassembly pieces mm -hmm. together, mm -hmm. they determine quality. Well, why do they determine quality? Because they hold the pieces that need to fit together. And therefore the quality of the pieces have to do with whether they can integrate well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Yeah, and that's that that becomes sort of the tolerance and variation and all that. That's right. That, exactly. Again, I, I love it because you know, you like that is um, you know, I, I was just I got inject, I was just reading the other day about Ford in the 70s outsourced their transmission work, right? And they decided to use a a, a company that was in the US and and it sounds like Mazda, but or, but somebody who made Mazda transmissions. And what they found was that customers would be saying, no, I want the ones with the, uh, you know, the foreign transmission. And they thought at first it was just, oh, you know, this nonsense about Japan's always better. And then they did a study. And there's actually a study out there where both transmissions fit exactly all the specifications. But they found that the ones that were built in Japan, like instead of being one six, they would be, you know, they just the tolerance was just, in other words, on face value, they were the same specs, same delivery, same interchangeable structure. When yep. they broke it down, they found that the there was like 30 or 40% tighter variant or, you know, yeah. control. And that just made the difference at the aggregate level of people just saying, no, no, I'm sorry. I can't explain why I want the, if I'm ordering, I want the car that has the, the transmission that was built in Japan. Yep. So, that, so I, I think that's the first one, right? Which is this recognizing that quality in these in this in this space is about relationships between things not about things themselves right okay. like it has to do with and that's real i think really important because again like uh if people listen to like deming or they start listening and we won't go down this rabbit hole too far but deming and or akoff you'll start hearing stories about systems and the way that systems are about the relationships between the parts. Yeah. And therefore, quality of a system is in the relationships between the parts. So their definition of quality, I think, becomes very important this way. And, and I'll put out one more thing. Like, 
for this particular rant, Short was was at at the Hawthorne factory. And what's the most interesting part about the Hawthorne factory from this perspective? They're making the first network mass manufactured object in the world, telephones. And therefore, it's it's the first system where the subcomponents, the individual telephones, can take down the larger network. In other words, everybody at the time is on a party circuit. If one person's phone goes down, the whole party circuit goes down. Um, so it becomes really important to understand quality and stuff like that. So, so then we say, so then we have this other like weird thing that where we, we, we need to kind of think through, which is it's about integration, but it's also about volume or mass manufacture. In other words, um, it's the first, well, I mean, I don't know if it's the first time, but it's in this context, you can't inspect everything. Yeah. It's impossible to possible. expect all, inspect all the components. The volume is too high. Um, so you get this weird, like sub, like people making sub assemblies in mass quantity, where the quality is defined somewhere else, but also you can't inspect each object, right? So obviously, this is going to lead us into statistical systems and sampling problem and sampling issues as a way of dealing with that, right? But the the last one has to do with time, right? And and the fact that Schuert and Deming end up being really concerned with temporality. And what they are worried about is what we actually really, really need is a system to test quality in time. In at, at and what I mean by in time is like at pace. Because mm-hmm. here's the here's the thing is that you could in theory say um well, why not just inspect everything? And you could. There's nothing preventing you from inspecting everything except for the economic cost of inspecting everything. Right, right, right. You can't, it would, and there's double economic cost, right? It would slow everything down, right. A, and B, it would be really expensive to inspect everything. So this is why you get the economic control of manufacture as the primary thing. And so it is a very... Uh, probabilistic, pragmatic in that economic way, uh, way of, of assuring quality inside of a system. And it becomes, that becomes the like core of it. And then you get this other kind of, I think, really interesting and weird thing that, that most people kind of miss in Lean and Short for sure, um, which is because of this probability and sampling and, and the economics you can't eliminate all the waste from the system. You cannot. You're not trying to. What you're trying to do is limit the out-of-tolerance waste created by the system to an economically viable amount so that the integrator, the person who examines the quality, says, I know that like one out of every 15 screws is bad, but I'm not willing to pay to have one out of 50 screws be bad. I will deal with it on my side. And so it becomes this weird economic exchange where quality is not absolute. It's practical or pragmatic. And the pragmatism has to do with whether or not you can economically create the entire system based on the level of quality of each individual part. And, and you know, and then that sort of ties into the sort of the when you first learn about statistical process control, the simplistic explanation is you take the mean of all the sort of data points of a particular thing you're measuring. You take three sigma below, three sigma above. Um, yep. You consider that in process 
Because that's yep. 90, what, 97.9 or 99.7. I don't know, I can't remember. But it's of all the things. And so you're already saying that, you know, that, hey, I've done a good enough job. You know, economically is I've already separated all my data points, um, you know, sort of beyond 97.9 or, or, or not. And, and I'm already thinking those two ways into different ways. And yeah, no, I, I, this all makes a lot of sense. And I guess, you know, I mean, we know that Toyota picked up, um, you know, parts of this, certainly uh, statistical cost control or the sort of quality control circles. And then, um, you know, and I think later Kaizen was sort of described as this thing that you couldn't, you know, maybe language translation or anything couldn't really describe what was going on there and sort of the continuous improvement, this, this, the way they socialized, um, op, they optimized their social, um, you know, in, in Rother calls it Toyota Kata or Kaizen. So we have that. And then I looked at sort of just see how that all unfolds for, from a Toyota perspective. I know you're a, a deep student of Toyota. And then, you know, finally, like, how does this all map? And I think maybe, you know that that you know when Allspar and those guys talk about mental models, or we talk oh, yeah. about sort of t- this t- this time based. Like we can't just say, "Oh, I know how this problem happened because this happened." And like, wait a minute, this yeah. happened was like a millisecond, and you know. So yeah, so take us home, Jabe. Okay, so I think there's two things to talk about really quickly, and again, th- like this is from Lewis, and it, and I think it like the impact on Deming in particular from this is is really like one of the profound things. And, and it's this, um, we talked a little bit about concepts and empiricism validating the interpretation of it, right? And um, I think one of the best ways of describing the implications of that is kind of Ono's um, Gemba. And what he means by the Gemba is like, you cannot interpret data in your office. The interpretation of the data happens in the factory where the work is being done. And so, uh, you know, Deming and Short had different names for this. Uh, Deming called uh, this um, the operational definition and uh, Short called it the operational meaning. And so what that means is really like the, the, the operational definition, operational meaning is the interpretation of some model in some co- in some empirical context, there's a there is a way in which the model is interpreted. That's the operational definition. And so the idea here is is to say, um, you can't know how your model, your data, your stuff is working if you don't go and literally ask the person who is using the model how they're using the model. <laughs> And show and be like, show me. So you know the that the the direction from Ono is go see go to where the model is being used. The model isn't working. Go to where the model is being used. One, <laughs> ask why. So please explain your interpretation of the model and the empirical experience you're having. How are the explain this to me? Yeah. And show respect, and that means. There's no reason to argue that that person is wrong or doesn't understand something because understanding or knowledge is the interpretation. They have knowledge that you don't have. That knowledge might be improved upon. You might help them see the knowledge in a different way or give them new knowledge. 
but they have knowledge. They have, they know something that you don't know. And so the question ends up being from, a, again, this is like a, a way of talking about kind of pragmatism and the relationship between these two, right? And, and so James's version of pragmatism has to do a lot with, um, again, we can look at like A3, for instance, the clarity of writing down your interpretation of the interface between the data and the mental model is critical for improving your knowledge. And so that's that's Toyota Kata, right? Toyota Kata, I, I, I often say like the scientific method is super simple. Here's the scientific method in 30 seconds. Write down what you think will happen. Uh, share it with somebody else, explain to somebody else. Do that thing. Examine the difference between what you thought would happen and what did happen, and then explain what the delta between the two to your to, to your partner or your peer, right? Yeah. That's the scientific method, right? And the important part of writing it down is simply, if you don't write it down, you won't have something to compare the result to. You'll forget, right? So that's the scientific method. And in a pragmatic perspective, the idea here is that's the way to create common ground or shared experience mm-hmm. um, where, where knowledge becomes a way of sharing, you know, uh, for, 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 uh, for Lewis, it was, what he called common concepts. Um, and, and what we see when we look at these other you know, newer uh, ideas um, that we see um, from people like Allspaw and stuff like that is now called common ground. And so we get into these ideas eventually that kind of come out of this pragmatic action idea where um, we, we, what we end up saying is we can't justify our actions absolutely we can't use pure rationality to do it because there's no ground that's that like so what we need to do is create ground we need to literally kind of say this is what we assume to be true not that it is true but this is what we assume to be true that's common ground and that's why we can act um and so then you get this weird thing called interpredictability which roughly means like john um I might not have done what you did, but I understand why you did it. Yeah. I understand why you thought it was justifiable, right? So that becomes really important um, because it allows interpredictability, which is different than saying everybody would do the right thing. Yeah. Everybody would do the justifiable thing. So then there's this last little rant that I, and then I'll, then I'll stop for other things. There's, because of the ideas of kind of evolution and the balance of coherence issues that come along with this like lack of foundation or lack of ground, we get two things. One is we need to constantly reproduce common ground because it's not something that is fixed. It is something that changes over time, A. And B, you get this very um, very weird version of, of, of what knowledge is. For Lewis and for, uh, you know, um, lots of people uh, now, uh, the question ends up being if, if knowledge can always change. And, and it's really interesting because Lewis literally describes knowledge as things that can change. Right. If it's stable, he doesn't think it's knowledge. He thinks it's a priori. He puts it in another, another okay. category. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, if if, if that's true, then you get two effects. One is what he calls epistemic, epistemological present. And what he means by that is that when you're looking at something, 
and trying to decide what to do, you are imagining the future, referencing the past. Mm -hmm. uh, So James called it a shoulder of temporality. Like you're not in an instant, you're in an extended present where you're examining if I do this, what do I think will happen based on what I've seen happen in the past? You have this extended experience. And, and that means that like everything um, is in time. It's, it's temporal. It, it, it's not fixed. It's uh, fluid. And it's in literally not the present, but in the tripartite time of examining the past, what's currently happening and the future all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, as yeah. a result of that, what you get um, uh, is this idea that I, you know, the, the, the way that they say it in resilience engineering right now is kind of lovely, which is whenever you're looking at something, the question is, why did it make sense when it happened? Yeah. Yeah. Because now you know things that you didn't know didn't before. Know. So you can't make sense of what happened from the new state because you will automatically see what didn't make sense back then. What, what wouldn't make sense if you were literally teleported from now back then you'd be like, this doesn't make sense. But at the time it absolutely made sense. Right. And so that's the question is in what way do the systems that you are in inform this temporal experience? And, you know, there's, I think there's a bunch of rants around there around um, again, the way that kind of statistical process control and that idea of the factory um, for short and Deming, what they eventually want uh, is to think that the common ground that's being reproduced is literally the manufacturing line. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. They want to stabilize the flow of materials through something that is stable itself. And yeah. so what they're questioning is not actually like, how do we, like, it's the difference between Taylor and Deming, right? Taylor is like, how do we get the people to do the same thing over and over again? And Deming is like, nonsense. (laughs) How do we get the machines to be stable? And how do we recognize the way in which humans interacting with the machines is part of what either stabilizes or destabilizes the system? That's right. All the way up the management. Yeah, no, no, I love it. I think, um, you know, the, I, the, the, I think the, best sort of like um, contemporary sort of commercial example of of that idea of of that sort of I feel you call that sort of temporal sort of uh, t- um, truth or knowledge is the Sully story right the the where you know the 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 um, the, the security board you know, the the whatever the the board that certifies accidents and all um, they have it mapped out by time and everything and you know when he finally comes to inclusion is let me show you what actually happens. Yeah, so right. in their view, in, in, in a sort of reflective, you know, postmortem was, well, you had this much time, you had this much time, you had this much time, you should have been able to make this time. And then he shows the complexity of all those things intertwined. They're like, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying now. You yeah. know, and I, I think that, go ahead. I mean, I think this is where like blame aware becomes really yeah. interesting or blame less becomes really interesting because you can't like you can't form post hoc rationality and then blame someone for not knowing it at the time. 
That's not fair. It's not reasonable, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's not reasonable to expect that someone. And it's an interpretation you know? anyway, right? It's an abstract interpretation. That's right. Yeah. Even if you're like great at the interpretation, it's still an abstract determinant. Yep. And so I think, like, you know, the really interesting kind of thing to kind of think about when we think about it is uh, about the whole conversation we just had is that the pragmatism has this like inherent idea inside of it, which is, you know, that knowing about the world is inseparable from agency, where agency means I do something and I can see the result. To the extent that I do something and can't see the results, I have no knowledge. Literally, I don't know what's happening, right? So the closure of feedback loops, which Mm -hmm. is something, of course, we talk about a lot in DevOps and all sorts of places, that is critical for the kind of pragmatic approaches that we take lacking that lacking understanding that individuals the people who are acting the people who are justifying their actions if they can't see the result of their actions they literally can't make justified actions so the closure of those feedback loops become you know really really important Um, and then the second one that is the one that i try to explain to people all the time is that all knowledge, all knowledge from a pragmatic perspective in this kind of, um, in this short Deming thing that we're talking about is only practic- is, is only examined as practical as a, in relation to the future. By what I mean by that is like, if the knowledge you have can't help you predict the future better, then you don't have knowledge in, in this frame. Like you don't know anything. So there's a relationship automatically that says that, you know, knowledge is not some abstract set of data. It's about expectations and about helping your expectations better correlate with what actually happens when you go and do a thing. And and then at that point, it is, you know, that's why probability is such a big part of that, right? Because part of that knowledge is, is the predicting as well. It's the whole, you know, plan do, right? Which is... Yep. It is a hypothesis, right? It's based on a form of knowledge about the future. Yep. Um, you're taking the best amount of data you can to get the highest probability that I think we should yep. do this change. That's right. Yep. Do. And, and I, think, I think, like the thing, the thing that I would point out there, because I agree with you, but I think that it's important for people to hear a version of this, to hear the anti-foundationalist version of it, which is to say, you can imagine that there's like a fixed reality. And that we can like get closer or further away from it. Like our predictions can be closer or further away. Like there's something like, I don't know, an apple. And we can say, and the apple's not changing. And we can say, um, we could take a guess at how much the apple weighs. And then we can weigh it and see. And then we could build theories and try to get better at predicting how much the apple weighs. Um, and, And that's one way of understanding probability. Like how, what is the, range of tolerance that I'm within in my estimate. Yeah. And that's interesting and good. But the second version of it, which is equally important is this, uh, the anti-foundationalist version of it is uh, the, the systems theory version of it, which is as I learn more about the weight of an apple and, the, and my ability to accurately depend, to, to accurately describe it, my understanding of apple pies change. Mm, okay. Yeah, 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 totally. And then my my understanding of the way the flower works changes. So right. there's like the foundation is also it's not just that we're getting closer or further away from something fixed. 
we're constantly having to re-examine it because the way that the things fit together yeah. changes. Yes, yes. Just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's easy to explain systems thinking, and I, I, I definitely want to have you back and let's do the whole, because another lens is appreciation of systems and profound knowledge. So I think we could have equally as fun time there. But but that's the thing. Like, all right, When I think about systems thinking, when I try to explain it like real quickly to somebody is, it's like you have these sort of parts and then seeing outside of those parts and be able to see all the interconnectivity of it. But I think that, again, this is why I love having conversations with you, you know, the idea that it's not just being able to see, it's to be able to understand that everything we talked about for the last 50 minutes affects all the other independent parts. And you have to sort of re-examine all those layers. And that, that's uh, that's really awesome to think about this. I guess with just a couple of minutes left, um, and it's like a terrible question to ask. I mean, if you had to think about... Um, yeah, you know, we we spend a lot of time with big clients, and and sometimes we I get you know I know you do too. We get frustrated that, you know, we we have a, we have a lot of practical experience, you know, you know, um, and then we have this a lot of sort of theoretical experience that most people don't draw on as heavy as we do, and then we see these sort of messes in large infrastructure. And, and I, you know, you sit there and it's like, God, if I could just move that piece here and, and, you know, and, and maybe what if they just did this, what would happen? And I mean, in an unfair way to end the podcast, I mean, do it. How do you see this? Um, you know, if you, people have asked me recently, John, if you had sort of one thing that you'd want an organization to think about in modern IT, you know, my first answer is if I had that answer, I'd be out on a fishing boat on the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> because I'd be so wealthy. It'd be ridiculous. But anyway, can we, we close it up with like what your thoughts are um, in a yeah. sort of tight way? And yeah. so, I mean, the thing that I think that I'm obsessed the most with right now, based on the conversation we just had, um, is um, the way in which. So if, if, if knowledge is, is in this temporality and this temporality is a loop, then one of the things we look for inside of organizations is where. Um, knowing something um, is important, but it's related to, to, to temporal loops that are much longer than the knowing we need to do. Mm-hmm. And so like really simple version of that. Um, a lot of IT for the longest time has been based on foundationalist theories of operations, uh, and especially of infrastructure operations. And what I mean by that, they try to stabilize the foundation. They try to stabilize it as much as possible, trying to make sure nothing moves, because the idea there is that then it's atemporal. The infrastructure does not uh, cause any looping with the rest of the system. It's supposed to be stable, so it shouldn't be interfering with other people's cycle times. I think everybody knows this isn't true, (laughs) but we keep on pretending it's true. So what's the most, I mean, to me, what the most critical impact that could happen right now and and i think we see it in you know devops and a lot of the things like you know like mark mark burgess's work is clearly involved in this is to literally get the cycle times to fit together again and partially what that means is literally abandoning foundationalism inside of operations and instead going for radical um compressed cycle times ephemeral infrastructures but why ephemeral infrastructures because then the infrastructures can change 
to fit what we discover in other parts of the organization, as opposed to resisting what we discover in other parts of the organization. Um, and I think that to me is like super yeah. critical I mean, um, aspect of this. To put it in the most simplest sort of DevOps speak, right, is it, everything you just talked about is the anti-pattern to that is, or the opportunity is the change windows. Right? This idea that there's some stability in these complex, independent, it's non-systems thinking, it's not really, you know, honoring this whole pragmatist approach to think that like maybe from November to January 1st, we no changes or even changes can only happen on the weekend, right? And we, we, we see this over and over proving all that wrong. Jabe, where do people find some of your work or, you know, so I'm sure so I have a blog that update. I, I like to say I have a blog that update every 10 years. That's Jabe.co. <laughs> um, and I tweet uh, quite frequently at C-Y-E-T-A-I-N.com, uh, dot, uh, dot Twitter. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Um, and I talk a lot there. Um, well, and I need yeah. to back. let's do uh, uh, appreciation systems because I think we'd have just equal amount of fun. Yeah, it'd be super fun. Later. All right. Thanks, Jay. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun, man. Great. Thank you.